I invite you to open up your Bibles now to Romans. Romans chapter 12. And as we... So what we're doing today, we're actually starting a new sermon series. Um, this is something that we've been, uh, te- I've been teasing for the past few weeks as we're looking at Romans 12 to 16 this fall. The reality is that we have all been impacted by the cultural, political, and pande- pandemic dynamics over the past few years. And intentionally or not, these dynamics are actually being used to tear apart the body of Christ. Just think about culturally, for example, that if you disagree with someone, then you can ghost on the person. You can have nothing to do with them. Or you, can, you actually have permission to treat them as an enemy. And that's just one dynamic that can easily be seen. And that community, community is seen as a commodity as opposed to something of great value to be held onto. And so as a commu- since community is a commodity, it can easily be exchanged, traded in one for another. And when we think about the church, the way of Christ ought to be different. The way of Christ ought to be different. And so Wendell Berry, a writer from Kentucky, a professor even, he wrote this in one of his poems. The way we are... We are members of each other, all of us, everything. The difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. His point is is that we are all connected to one another, that we are all members of one another. And so this fall, we are looking at the ramifications of the gospel upon our community life. What do we need to relearn in order to be the body of Christ? How can we embody the gospel together and demonstrate the gospel in our life together? How do we need to come together as the body of Christ? So if the culture is seeking to tear apart the body of Christ, in other words, dismembering the body, how do we need to remember the body and come together? And so this morning we're looking at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. And so let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. As you have called us here to gather around your word. We pray that your word would be ministering in our life, that your spirit would minister to us, plant your word deeply in our hearts, that we would hold on to it as our great treasure, for you reveal yourself to us in these pages. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Statisticians, those who do polls and surveys, have seek to... When we think about the church life, they have a certain question that they're trying to measure. They're specifically asking a question when it comes to the church, what does it 
look like to be a committed Christian? And statisticians have their own answer to that question of what does it look like to be a committed Christian? And one of the most clear identifiers of that question of what does it mean to be a committed Christian is seen in their question, how often do you go to Sunday worship? How often do you go to Sunday worship? And so the American Bible Society, which is based here in Philadelphia, they revealed in their 2022 State of the Church report that two-thirds of Gen X, Gen Z, and millennials all combined do not go to church on Sundays. And of those, those generations, we're actually talking about committed Christians. They do not go to church on Sundays. And so the point is that as we think about the church in, in America, at least from those who would identify as Christians, they, American Christians from these surveys do not see the church as essential to their walk with God. They do not see the act of worship as essential to their discipleship. And so not only is, does this mean that America is a mission field, this also means that the American church needs great discipleship. And this is the very sobering for us because when you think about the church, when you think about what it means for Christians to live out their identity as a son or daughter of God, one of the main things that Christians ought to do is worship, is worship. If you think about all the things that Christians should do, number one should be worship. Yes, service. Yes, be a missionary. Yes, be a family. Yes, be a disciple. But worship needs to be a worshiper should be at the top of the list. And so where this goes is for us as, as Christians, are we able to explain what worship is? Are we able to answer certain questions of why worship? What happens when we worship? How do, are we able to explain these answers? Are we, are we able to give questions to the, answers to these questions? There we go. Now, as the Apostle Paul is writing these verses here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he is not just simply thinking about congregational worship on Sunday. He's also thinking about our everyday life, our everyday discipleship with God, where we are following Jesus Christ. But our everyday life with God is defined by worship. And so if you want to grow and be more like Jesus Christ, then you must worship God. That's the main idea. That's the main idea that we're going to be considering today. And we want to consider this, and as we consider this, we hope to, I hope to answer some questions that I just pointed out. And so as, as an outline, like the first point I want to put before you is the ask. The ask. What is Paul asking us to do? It's not even really an ask. It's a command. And this is where Paul appeals to us to present our bodies holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, Paul captures the complexity of our humanity here. He points out that we are embodied people who engage in spiritual worship. This frankly challenges us just as it would challenge the Greco-Roman mind. 
I believe it was the Greek philosopher Plato who taught that the body was actually a cage for the soul, and so the soul ought to escape the body. In other words, the body's a bad thing, and yet the soul's a good thing. And so Paul is pointing out that we are to present our bodies before God, and he's upholding the goodness, and he's bringing dignity to our bodies here. But this also challenges us in a similar way to that it would challenge the Greco-Roman mind. So James Smith, author of You Are What You Love, he highlights that American Christianity treats people simply as brains on a stick. His point is is that in our American society that we are very rationalistic beings and that we as Christians, we reduce Christianity to ideas. So simply following Jesus is really about having the right information. And Paul contrasts that. But when he moves to verse 2, he says, be transformed. That following Jesus is not primarily about information. It's actually about transformation. And so as, what, as Paul is challenging us here, he's again pointing out that our bodies matter to our spirituality. And friends, this ought to be a given. Just think about when you're tired. You're more prone to overeat. Perhaps you click on things you shouldn't. You snap in anger. The simple point is that our bodies matter in our discipleship. And so these two verses here capture the fullness of who we are. And Paul's simple point is, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you walking with God wholeheartedly? Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might? But Paul is also using sacrificial temple language, that we are meant to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so as he's using this language, we ought to think of the Levitical sacrifices and the sacrificial system within a temple when Israel would bring a lamb before God and present it to God. This lamb would be spotless, holy, and acceptable to God. Friends, are you living a life that is pleasing before God? But while that is a question that ought to be asked, that would actually miss out on something because the sacrificial system was pointing to someone else. The temple was pointing to someone else. They foreshadowed Jesus to his own sacrifice upon the cross. And so the Roman Christians would certainly know that. The Roman Christians would know of Jesus' death upon the cross. And so these verses are a reiteration of Jesus' own call to us. When Jesus says that whoever wants to follow me must pick up their cross, die, and follow me. And so friends, if you want to live, you must first die to yourself. Because anything less than a total, wholehearted sacrifice of yourself does not make sense. Because God wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants to speak and inform your money, your possessions, your parenting, your family, your your relationships, everything. It's illogical for us to say that to God that he can have everything but not this. And so my friend Brian shared a quote um, in his own sermon on this passage, and uh, he said he found it from D.L. Moody. And he 
he points this out from D.L. Moody, that the problem with the living sacrifice is that the living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. The problem with the living sacrifice is that the living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. We don't want to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We don't want to die to ourselves. We want to hold on to things. But this is actually where we need to be honest. Why? Why should we have this wholehearted, this total discipleship where we are completely giving ourselves to God? Why should we die to ourselves? So all that's under really the ask, the command, where Paul is saying to us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. But even as I just read over that verse, you notice I skipped a, a little phrase. And this gets us to the why. Why should we do this? On what basis, on what foundation should we be following Jesus Christ? He says this, that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to be a living sacrifice. The mercies of God are key here. The reason why we should worship God, the reason why we should give ourselves wholly to God is because of his good mercies. In the book of Romans, Paul has spent the entire letter, all these 11 chapters, up to this point, highlighting this wonderful good news of God's mercy, that we are sinners without hope, that we are sinners who are left without excuse, that we are sinners who deserve God's punishment for our sins. And in fact, we have never sought God. And yet God does something wonderful, that God, by his mercy, sends his son to die upon the cross to rescue us from our sins, and in doing so, we are given a new reputation. We're given this new reputation in light of Jesus' life and his death upon the cross. In light of his resurrection, we are made a new people. And so as we look to Jesus in in faith, we are wholly united to him. And so wonderfully, just as Jesus was raised from the grave, the same spirit that raised him from the grave, that same spirit is given to us to live and to dwell within us. What's so mind-blowing about this is that the script, the same spirit who hovered over the waters upon creation, the same spirit who inspired all the various, various writers of, of Scripture to write down Scripture, the same spirit to live and to guide and dwell within Jesus and to raise him from the grave, that same spirit is at work within us. That's mind-blowing. And so where Paul goes to with all this is in Romans 8. Nothing, neither life nor death, can separate you from the love of God. There's absolutely nothing that can condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, all of that is what he has in mind. All of that is that we are here, friends, because we are loved by God. That we have life with God because we are loved by God. And this is the foundation for Paul's command This is the foundation for his appeal to you to worship God. And here's the important lesson here. 
the motivation for our discipleship, the motivation for our worship is the mercy of God. And if we do not get this, we do not understand Christianity. If we think anything else, it's moralism. Because moralism says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I do something, therefore God loves me. But yet Jesus says in in John 8, to the woman who's caught in adultery, has anyone condemned you? No, no one, my Lord. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. See, that's the gospel. There's no condemnation. And out of that that wonderful reality, we are called never to sin again. So Romans 2 verse 4 says this, Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance? The motivation, friends, for our discipleship is God's kindness. So John Stott, he had this brilliant insight. And I'm not a fantastic Greek scholar, so I would not really notice this. But John Stott says this, It is no accident that in Greek the same nouns for grace, which is charis, is the same noun used for gratitude. So the word for grace and gratitude are actually the same word, grace, charis. So God's grace, far from encouraging or condoning sin, is the spring and foundation for our righteous behavior. So Eugene Peterson, as he uh, puts a paraphrase to this, this is actually the second Sunday in a row I'm quoting from the message it's great. It's great. So this is what Eugene Peterson says. So here's, I want, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That is what Paul is calling and commanding us to do here, and it's all because God has loved us first. And so this brings us to the third thing. Because now in verse 2, Paul starts saying, don't do this, instead do this. He first, verse 1, spoke about the body, but now verse 2, he speaks about the mind. And he's clearly showing that we're not just brains on a stick. And so the result, this is the third point, the result. Here's verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. When we think about our, the world that we live in, our world is often at odds with God, as our world is in open rebellion against him. So the world does not want you to follow Jesus Christ. But it's actually more than that. The world is actually actively trying to get you not to follow Jesus. So J.B. Phillips, in his own translation on, of this verse, says this. This is how he translates this verse. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. See, friends, our world wants us to be different than Jesus. And this is actually something that we need to be aware of. This is something that we need to be vigilantly aware of and on guard against if we are truly going to obey Paul's command here. If we want to be transformed, we have to be vigilant here. So instead of being conformed to the world, we are called to be transformed. 
And this word, the Greek word that's used here for transformation is also used in the Gospels in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. When Jesus appeared to his disciples of Peter, James, and John alongside Moses and Elijah. And the word is metamorpho. This, so you hear that word and perhaps you thought I was going to say metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, there we go. The thing about a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly See, friends, the Christian life is a life of transformation where our character is transformed, where our behavior is transformed, where we are transformed away from the ways of this world and we are transformed into the mold of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a distinct, a very distinct difference in who you are as a, in Christ now as opposed to when you didn't know Jesus. There ought to be a distinct difference. It may be something that you only know in, internally, but you ought to be able to be aware of that distinction. And so the world, again, is at odds with God. And so the world's value system, while the world's value system may borrow things from God's value system, the world's value system is at odds with God's own value system. And this is true, whether we're thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness or how to even respond to evil, about ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, education, or anything else in life. And so the two sets of, of these value systems, these standards, they diverge so completely that there, there is no possibility of compromise. And so we are called to be transformed. But how are we transformed into the mold of Jesus Christ? Be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Another way of putting this is simply, is your imagination captured by Christ? Is your imagination captured by Christ? See, our imaginations are captured by Christ. Our minds are renewed through various habits. And we call these means of habits within our Reformed tradition as the means of grace. And one of the means of grace simply is congregational worship. Congregational worship. And so when you are worshiping, you're not just here this morning just singing a few songs. You're not here this morning hearing a sermon. And there's also other things that you could be doing this morning that would probably be more enjoyable to you. But you're here this morning for a reason. That as you're here this morning, you are actually engaging in a rhythm of worship that is consistent. Week after week. It's a consistent rhythm of worship. And so as we go through our worship, we tell the gospel story. It is a counter mold fighting and pushing against what the world is trying to make you. Our worship is actually meant to be counter formational as opposed to what the word is doing, what the world is doing. It is a in protest against it. So to quote James Smith again, this is not this is from a different book of his called Desiring the Kingdom. This is what he wrote about worship. Worship is the imagination station. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we do not come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes us top down. 
Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabilitates our loves. Worship is not just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the greatest of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. See, when we worship God, God actually does something within us. And so everything that we do within our liturgy and our rhythm of worship is, is actually helping our heart, retrain our hearts. When, when we go from praying to singing to hearing God's word to celebrating the supper to enjoying each other's fellowship and company and friendship, all of this actually retrains our hearts and, and conforms us to Christ. And so when we hear a sermon, when we read scripture, Let's remember, you need to remember a truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so there's many times that hearing God's Word or reading Scripture, that it actually unsettles you. It makes you uncomfortable. And that should happen. And that happens because God is at, says he works through his word and that his spirit is always working wherever his word goes. And so that God is likely correct, seeking to correct something in your life so that he would have a sweeter friendship with you. And so another thing that we take with us, even outside of worship, just as we take reading of scripture outside of worship into our everyday lives, another thing that we take out of our worship together into our everyday lives is the fact that we are the family of God, that we are brothers and sisters with one another. So as God gathers us here this morning, God does not scatter us apart from one another the rest of our week. No, God sends us out into our everyday moments of our life together where we are actually meant to be in each other's lives every single week even outside of this space. And the primary way that we express this in our daily lives is through our community groups. And our community groups are meant to be a place where you can experience Jesus together. So just to let you know that our community groups typically follow the school year. And so they're kicking off in, in a few weeks. And I want to share with you that this fall, um, we seek to have six community groups this fall. And please sign up. There are sign-up boards on the, the welcome, by the welcome table out there. And just to let you know where they're going to be, it's Westchester, Exton, Pocopson, Cheney, Glen Mills, um, Downingtown, and Goshen. So we're covering the Westchester area. And there will be more information about that in the weekly emails. But the reality is we seek to practice our, our community life together, our family life in our community groups. And so all these things, from worship to reading scripture to prayer to being in each involved in each other's lives, all of these things are necessary for us to have our minds renewed. But once our mind is renewed, look and see where Paul goes, that then we are able to discern God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we're able to discern God's will, that is a sign that we are growing in Christ's likeness, that we are being formed into the image of Christ. And friends, that is the goal that we have 
as a church, that we want to be formed into the image of Christ. We want to be made in his image. So why is that the case? It's simply because we are the body of Christ. If we would be anything different, that would be a tragedy. So let us seek to have our minds renewed. Let us seek to be transformed. Let's seek to present our bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, as that is our spiritual act of worship. Let's pray.